Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. It's Wednesday, March 18th. Today's podcast comes to you as the number of coronavirus cases worldwide passes the 200,000 mark. The number of deaths has hit the 8,000 mark and the number of people who have recovered is over 82,000. Irish bank chiefs met the Minister of Finance, Pascal Donoghue, today and he's outlined a series of measures to be taken by the banks. They'll commit to payment holidays for mortgage and personal customers affected by the virus, amongst other things. These actions and more that we will take provide support to those who are most impacted by COVID-19. We must work together. We must support each other. This will come as welcome news for many, Cliff Taylor. Yeah, there's three main, there were three main parts to the announcement today. One was um, the possibility of a three-month break in mortgage payments for people affected by the crisis. The other were uh, similar measures to help people with buy-to-let mortgages who in turn had tenants who were affected by COVID-19. And the third set of measures were aimed at uh, SMEs who are going to get a range of supports and help from the banks uh, to try and help them through the crisis because obviously many many have been hit by, by cash flow, uh, severe cash flow difficulties. Now these are obviously uh, you know, a significant start and a significant move uh, equally, I think it's clear that there are still th- some things left to be worked out. Uh, the banks are to meet the central bank tomorrow uh, and have w- will have some issues to discuss with the central bank as well in terms of how this is managed uh, and how the rules are applied, if you like. And I think we still have to see some of the detail of how this will work spelled out. Uh, for example, in relation to mortgages, it re- it, the press release from the minister refers to the possibility of payment breaks of up to three months, and tells uh, those affected that they have to go and talk to their bank to their banks. So obviously, we you know we have to see this fleshed out uh, and brought into operation. And I think uh, you know a very significant logistical operation for the banks here as well, because there's so many people involved and indeed so many companies involved as well. Cliff, uh, he, he mentioned a couple of times that these supports would be available from the banks to people who had been adversely affected. Who will be denoting the, the meaning of adversely affected in this context? Yeah, I think that is what, one of the things that has to be fleshed out here. How are, how are people going to qualify for these reliefs? Uh, you know, how are they going to verify to the banks that they have indeed been affected by COVID-19? Um, I, I think the other issue is that it's been made clear that the payment holidays may last for up to three months, but it's quite possible I think the crisis uh, may extend you know, well beyond that. Uh, and, it, and it may extend beyond that, uh, you know, even, even if the restrictions are, are, are waived, uh, who, who's to know how, you know, what companies are going to come back and when jobs are going to be made available to people again. So I think there's a lot, of, lot, lot to be fleshed out here and a lot will still come back to the individual banks uh, and how they manage each particular cases. And as, as I said, a huge, a huge job for them here, given the, given the uh, number of people involved. Cliff, in the run-up to the announcement of these measures today, I think it's fair to say expectations of the banks to do the right thing were high, and, and that's particularly so since the, since the bailout following the property crash. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and, and I think rightly so as well. Of course, we had the bailout during the financial crisis when the banks were supported with 
uh, 64 billion euro of taxpayers money and and since then we've also had the tracker mortgage scandal where the banks uh, fell well short of what they should have done in, in in dealing with people who should have been on tracker mortgages so you know i think there is a a strong moral case here for the banks to step in and, and if you like do the, do the right thing uh, but I think what we're going to see now over the coming weeks is, uh, you know, the the attempt to put that into a process which will actually work for people and will give give people some certainty, and also the attempt to to put it into a process which which can actually work in practice because as we know, there are tens of thousands of people who have lost their jobs. Uh, they won't all have mortgages, but but a lot of them will, and a lot of them who don't will be will be renting, and that you know won't be able to pay their landlords. So I think there's a lot of practicality still to be worked through here in terms of exactly how this is going to work. Uh, and of course, the banks, uh, you know, the banks are, are in a stronger position than they were uh, going into the financial crisis in 2008. But they are, you know, still their balance sheets are, are, are not limitless either. So I, I think there's a lot of work to uh, turn the announcement uh, that was made today in, in, into practice and into genuine relief uh, for, for, for borrowers. We've been hearing a lot about businesses uh, struggling and the Minister did have uh, news for those businesses today. What's your understanding of those supports? Well, I think uh, the government has already announced uh, supports for employees uh, who are laid off from these businesses and, and is asking businesses insofar as possible to keep employees on their books and, and coming up with a scheme to ensure that they can uh, get some money back to the state from the state uh, for, for the cost of that as the crisis goes on and and previously the government has also announced you know a range of scheme schemes a range of loan schemes a range of uh, supports to try and keep companies going uh, but this is really the most you know the most extraordinary shock to consumer demand we've ever seen uh, more sudden than happened during the financial crisis uh, sector suddenly closing um, the hotel and tourism sector, the, the pub sector, uh, pretty much closing down the restaurant sector under huge pressure. Really, any re- any part of the retail sector outside of groceries and food under huge pressure. What was announced today was that that, that the banks are going to uh, come forward with a, with a range of schemes as well. They're going to show forbearance on loans. Um, they're going to try and help companies with working capital. Uh, but but again, this is really difficult because it, it's not just a question in 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 most in in many of the cases involved. It's not just a question of revenue dropping off by you know ten or fifteen or twenty percent. You know, revenue has disappeared for a lot of businesses, and for a lot of others, it's down by you know sixty, seventy, eighty percent. Pick your figure. Uh, so if if some kind of economic normality can be resumed, um, say by the summer months. Uh, some kind of arrangements might be, uh, you know, might be reached with the banks and, and via these government schemes, which can at least keep a lot of companies in business. I, I think the worry of a lot of businesses is that we really don't have any clarity yet on when the restrictions might be lifted, uh, understandably, given the public health emergency nature of it. Um, so they are, they, they are saying, OK, we might be given relief for a few months, but we don't know what's going to happen beyond that. And, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're unlikely to have clarity on that for some time yet. In fact, the restrictions, if anything, are likely to, to, to become tighter be, be, before they loosen. The central bank has announced its decision today to reduce the countercyclical capital buffer to zero percent. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, I mean, basically, the, the central bank has rules in place 
in in relation to the amount of money that uh, the central bank is allowed lend, uh, compared to the the assets, uh, if you like, that it keeps on its on its balance sheet, and th- this rule, I, I suppose, um, obliged uh, the banks to hold more assets to, to, to give themselves more leeway, if you like, if times were bad. You know, now that times are bad, uh, the decision has, has, has been made uh, to, to loosen those rules. And the importance of that is that it will allow, it should allow the banks to loan more money to businesses, you know, particularly to restructure loans uh, for companies that are in difficulty or that need working capital support over the next few months. Thanks, Cliff. On the 31st of January 2020, the same day Britain left the European Union, the first case of coronavirus was recorded in the UK. Coronavirus has reached the UK. Three more people have tested positive in the UK for coronavirus. There are now uh, 456 people. Ten further deaths of patients who tested positive. Over 2,500 people have tested positive for the virus, and over 100 have lost their lives. In the last 24 hours alone, 676 cases were discovered. Britain's response to the outbreak has been somewhat different to its European counterparts. As Italy and Spain went into lockdown and travel restrictions increased around the world, countries closed their borders, but Britain carried on business as usual. Some 60,000 people attended Cheltenham last week and Scottish singer Lewis Capaldi sang for 26,000 fans in a sold-out Wembley arena. However, in recent days, there has been a major shift in that approach, probably on foot of fears that the National Health Service would collapse under pressure. We need people to start working from home where they possibly can. And you should avoid pubs, clubs, theatres and other such social venues. And just now, at the time of recording, the UK has announced the closure of all schools from Friday. So what is the British experience of the coronavirus now? And how does it differ to ours here? Our UK editor, Dennis Staunton, spoke to producer Declan Conlon earlier. London's very quiet. Uh, Most people, anybody who can, is working from home. But it's a bit different from, say, Dublin, insofar as the bars and the restaurants are open. They're empty. But they're open, and if you talk to people, uh, say the the people who run the restaurants near where I live, most of them will say they're going to try to stay open until somebody tells them not to. And so it's a kind of a strange feeling, but it's certainly a little bit uh, less of a lockdown feeling than in many other European capitals. People feel as if it's uh, it's a kind of a wartime feeling, and life has changed, and nobody knows what's going to happen. And yet, there is also a sense that people want to carry on as normal insofar as they can. And the other thing which I think marks London out as different to many other places is that most people you meet, uh, they think that everybody's going to get the virus anyway. And some people I will talk to will say, you know, I'd actually like to get this now and get it over with. And so although there's obviously the the knowledge that people who are older or who have other health conditions are very vulnerable, I think that most people who are not in either of those categories, a lot of them here seem to be quite relaxed about the idea of actually getting it themselves and hoping that they can then just bounce back after a week and then feel they're immune and they can carry on working. 
Part of the issue here, I think, is that the government's message hasn't been clear. Uh, if you look at, say, uh, the message from the Irish government, uh, it's been pretty clear and pretty stark. Schools, colleges and childcare facilities will close from tomorrow, where possible teaching will be done online or remotely. Here, the messaging seems to have been a bit confused and also the language of it was was relaxed so that people here are encouraged to do things, but they're not told to do things. So, for example, Boris Johnson encouraged people not to go to bars or restaurants and not to go to big events, but he didn't actually tell the bars and restaurants that he'd like them to close or indeed instruct them to close. It's important that Londoners now pay special attention to what we're saying about avoiding non-essential contact and to take particularly seriously the advice about working from home and avoiding confined spaces such as pubs and restaurants. When the, uh, the epidemic started, the initial response of the British government was quite similar to, uh, to everywhere else. What they said what they wanted to do was to flatten the curve of infections uh, so that they would spread out the number of infections over a long period in order not to overwhelm the National Health Service. And uh, they also spoke about uh, the need for various measures. And they said that some of these measures, like, say, a voluntary self-isolation and social distancing and all kinds of things like closing schools, that these could happen and they could come on stream. But they said it was very important to do it at the right time. We've always made it very clear that the crucial thing is timeliness. Our, our interventions should be should be timely to have the... The maximum effect. But still at the start, you know, before other countries took really very severe measures, there wasn't that much difference between the approach that Britain had to the approach elsewhere. But in the last, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you started to hear different noises coming from London. The suggestions they were making were a bit milder uh, and they were coming a bit later than elsewhere. So, for example, until this week, you know, the only advice uh, that anybody was getting, apart from washing hands and you know, cough hygiene, was that if you were exhibiting uh, symptoms like a, a cough or a fever, that you yourself should stay at home for seven days. Now, there was no suggestion that you ought to get tested and there was no suggestion there should be any contact tracing. And until this week, they didn't even suggest that members of your household should stay at home with you. From this week, they're saying that actually if you're in a household with uh, somebody who has symptoms, that you, you all ought to stay at home for, uh, for two weeks. And so, uh, so what, what was happening was that the pace of these measures seemed to be slower here in Britain than it was elsewhere. So even as the rest of the world locks down, you as yep. a public health official in the UK think it's perfectly OK to go to mass gatherings? I do, for public health reasons. However... How From can there today, be a public chosen... health reason in telling people to wash their hands every two hours, which is the only advice while you sing happy birthday, That's and not... then going to a group of 12,000 people all sweating and massing around each other? How does any of that make sense? And then something else happened, which was that the uh, chief scientific officer, Sir Patrick Vallance, he started to talk about a theory of herd immunity where he said that if uh, you had, say, 60% of the population was infected with the virus and were consequently unable to pass the virus on, 
that if you made sure that uh, while they were getting infected, that the more vulnerable people who could actually get very ill or could die from this, that they were staying at home and they were isolated, that then actually this herd immunity, the, uh, the healthier people getting infected, could actually help to protect the vulnerable. So we want to suppress it not get rid of it completely, which you can't do anyway, not suppress it so we get the second peak, and also allow enough of us who are going to get mild illness to become immune to this to help with the sort of whole population response which would protect everybody. But nonetheless, this uh, you know, went out into the public discourse and it frightened people because they thought, uh, does the government actually want us all to get this thing? when everybody else appeared to be trying to do everything to stop people getting it. And so two things happened then over the weekend. The first was that uh, there were a whole load of uh, rather contradictory briefings coming out from different parts of the government. So you had, uh, first of all, somebody saying, the health secretary saying, actually herd immunity is not the policy of the government. Herd immunity is not our, our goal or policy. It's a scientific concept. Our policy is to protect lives and to beat this virus. And then you had anonymous briefings saying maybe it was, and also maybe everybody over 70 was going to be ordered to stay at home and not to leave the house for 12 weeks. And that frightened people. But at the same time, the government got a fright because uh, the behavioural uh, or the epidemiologists in Imperial College London, who were really the main people doing the modelling, uh, for how this virus was going to spread and what was going to happen. And they came up with a new document which said that looking at all the evidence from elsewhere, particularly from Italy, that actually if the government carried on the way it was going and didn't take more aggressive measures to suppress the virus, the kind of measures that you're seeing in Ireland, that what would happen would be that you could, ha could have 200,000 people dying or more over the next couple of months. And so what they said was that, you know, you obviously can't do that, you know, you're going to have to, so if you don't want to, or at least if you want to avoid that, you're now going to have to step up these measures uh, in terms of, of isolation and distancing. And that's when you saw on Monday uh, the Prime Minister coming out and saying there are these new measures, we're going to ask people to stay away from bars, to stay away from restaurants, self-isolation for people who have symptoms or those around them who have symptoms. I know that we are today asking a lot of everybody. This is far more now than just washing your hands, though, though clearly washing your hands remains important. And so these were the new measures that were being announced. But once again, uh, he still didn't say that the schools ought to close, and there's been a great reluctance to do that. We're keeping all measures under review, and, and particularly, obviously, people will be thinking about, about school closures. There is an argument about, about school closures. Uh, we think at the moment, on balance, it's much better if we can keep schools open for, for all sorts of reasons. It's extraordinary the level of popular resistance you come across just anecdotally to the idea of closing the schools because it's just so disruptive in terms of people's working lives. And so, you know, and I asked a question actually at the first press conference on Monday uh, about this. Dennis Staunton from the Irish Times. Uh, thank you, Prime Minister. And the chief medical officer, uh, Chris Whitty, said, uh, well, I'd like to remind you that uh, this virus tends to spare children. Thankfully. This virus seems to spare children relative to other ages. But of course the children can nonetheless, as far as we know, 
uh, get infected and become vectors and so go on to infect uh, adults, uh, including older, more vulnerable people. So it seemed to me to be a, a puzzling kind of an answer. But anyway, it looks like we'll probably get a bit of uh, a bit of action on that, if not today, then tomorrow. And actually, if you look at what's happening overall, uh, the UK and Ireland are on uh, are on very much the same uh, path. And we are, you know, Dennis, we are in, in you know, daily contact with uh, uh, with our counterparts in, you know, with the Taoiseach's office and so on uh, to make sure that we're we're coordinating things as much as, much as, we, as we reasonably can. Yes, sir. Professor Neil Ferguson, whose work at Imperial College seems to have prompted the shift in the in the policy, he uh, said today that he uh, had been experiencing a persistent dry cough, and that he woke up at four o'clock in the morning with uh, with, a, with a very severe fever, and he believes that he has the symptoms of the coronavirus. I was actually sitting right next to him or just behind him at the press conference in Downing Street the other day and we were chatting for quite a long time and he was telling me that the uh, incidence of the coronavirus here in Westminster is about the highest in the country and it's partly because so many people are coming and going and and also, uh, you know, frankly here at a lot of things, they really haven't started practising much by way of social distancing. Uh, You know, people are still, even at our press conferences in Downing Street, we're still crammed right next to each other. It's probably not surprising that uh, that anybody in that uh, environment, and he was obviously at a lot of meetings over the last uh, few weeks, that they would find themselves quite easily exposed to the virus. Britain and uh, the European Union have agreed to cancel face-to-face trade negotiations planned for next week in London due to the coronavirus outbreak. The move threatens a timeline which uh, many in the EU thought was already optimistic. With the British Prime Minister. If you look at the timetable that the scientists have been talking about over the past uh, few days, they've been saying that you know there's really this 12-week period. Uh, it's probably starting at the weekend when the older people and the more vulnerable should uh, stay at home. And so that's obviously, as far as they're concerned, the crucial period in trying to fight this uh, this epidemic. And if you look ahead to 12 weeks, that takes us to the middle of June. And that's when Boris Johnson would have to decide, first of all, if he thought that the Brexit talks were making enough progress to keep going and keep talking. Uh, to the Europeans or if he should just sort of walk away and prepare for a kind of a no-deal arrangement. And also, uh, if he wants to um, to extend the transition period beyond the end of 2020, then he has to ask by the end of June. Now, uh, there was a round of talks due to happen this week which have been postponed because uh, nobody can meet. And it's pretty clear that the capacity of the British government on the one side and of the European Commission to conduct these talks is going to be limited by the focus on the uh, coronavirus. And the second thing is that an awful lot of this post-transition period uh, planning uh, is going to involve businesses having to make changes to how they do things. And since businesses already have an awful lot on their plate, the idea that you're going to have uh, be able to tell businesses over the next few months, uh, you know, you better start uh, getting ready for new customs arrangements, get a customs broker. I think it's fanciful. But at the moment, uh, Downing Street insists that the transition date, uh, the end of the transition is written into British law, which it is. But of course, um, with an 80 seat majority, uh, the government can change any law it wants. And so I think if you look at 
the two timetables and the spread of the virus, I think it's very hard to see how you meet that deadline and how you don't actually um, extend the, uh, the, the transition. So I would say the transition period will be extended beyond the end of this year. One of the many questions we've had is whether it is possible pets can carry or have the virus. Our medical expert, Dr. Maurice Houston, says there is currently no scientific evidence that humans can pass on the coronavirus to pet animals. He says while it's true an animal reservoir will likely emerge as the original source of the virus, it is most unlikely that a domestic pet will turn out to be the vector to humans. My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced today's podcast, and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow.